You're listening to the players here on C90.7 FM, and we're joined with a very special guest on the line, Bill Woods. I don't know where to begin with him. He's had a fantastic career in broadcasting, 24 years at Channel 10, where he's covered multiple sporting events, including the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, the Rugby World Cup, and numerous motorsport events. Bill, thanks a lot for your time this morning. That's a pleasure, mate. I've got plenty of time. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's let's go let's go to the beginning now. Now you began you finished your studying in 1982, I think it was. What made you go from that to saying, "Look, I want a career in broadcasting." Well, it was interesting. At the time, they were they were actually sacking journo's left, right, and centre in uh, all the newspaper uh, headquarters around Australia. So, one of the first things that greeted that uh, you know that uh, graduates uh, from 80, yeah, I think it was eighty two. <laughs> was, was uh, very lean prospects for getting a cadetship or anything like that. And um, we had done some electronic media in, a, in our course. Uh, they do a lot more these days, obviously, with technology changing so much. But back in 82, we had done radio and TV, albeit the TV was black and white, I think. But anyway, we, um, we, we, uh, I decided to, uh, to try and pursue the electronic side of things because uh, it interested me just as much. And... Um, and, and so I was very fortunate in that area too because there was a, uh, a radio broadcaster's uh, course uh, being offered in Sydney at the time. Um, I was based uh, in Canberra. Uh, well, I, I come from the south coast, but I was in Canberra when the, when the uni course was. And um, that came up. They had a limited number of um, uh, places, but I guess because I just had a journalism degree under my belt, uh, I managed to get one of those, and that's how I, I got through radio at the end of that six-month intensive course, uh, we were all placed um, in, in jobs. I was a DJ out in country New South Wales, um, spinning discs. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but that's where I started. I did that for about nine months before I got into a newsroom. Oh, yeah, and tell us a bit about your time at Radio 2 WS. Yeah, well, that was funny. The first, um, it's a complicated story in that the um, they were trying something new at the time. They were trying to run satellite studios. Instead of the country station being based in a you know a major town in a regional area, what they thought they would do was put uh, satellite studios in three towns. Uh, in which case, uh, Mike Hammond, you might recall from Foxtel fame, uh, mostly. Um, Mike started out at the same time as me. He had a studio in Cowra. I was in a studio at Cootamundra, and they still had their base headquarters um, uh, at Young, and, and that was 2LF, and that was owned by 2BS at the time. Um, oh, sorry, you asked me that 2WS, didn't you? Sorry, I, I was getting all mixed up. Oh, you um, can go on 2LF Young as well. That's all right. The, the, the story there was that um, when I first went into the studio, they'd, they'd thought of everything except records. There were no records to play. And it was a music station, of course, like most country stations. So I had to go down to the local Retrovision store and buy a couple of, you know, greatest hits albums and uh, race back to the little apartment that I'd uh, rented in Cootamundra to grab anything I could from my own collection um, to play on the radio. So my first radio stint as a DJ was pretty much with my own records. There's not many DJs get to do that. But then, uh, yeah, I got a phone call um, in uh, 83 from um, TWS who, was, who uh, were setting up, um, were expanding their news in Sydney. And even though they were a music station, they had a very, very strong newsroom. And they had a team of about 16 or 17 people, which for a radio station was quite large. And um, they got me in as a cadet. Um, at 2WS and it all went from there. Fantastic. Who, who were some of the people that you looked up to when getting into the industry? Well, um, 
funnily enough, Timmy Webster, who of course has been a colleague of mine for many years on Sports Tonight, um, before that was a DJ, he was a, a newsreader in Sydney with um, Katrina Lee, and at that point they, in the 80s they outrated uh, Brian Anderson, and he was also a um, um, hosted Good Morning Australia at one stage, so Tim had a very distinguished career. So um, he was uh, a bloke I looked up to and also coincidentally started his career in country radio in the same area that I did. So interestingly enough, um, he became a good mate of mine, of course, when we went to work, uh, when I finally went to work for 10 uh, in uh, late 88, early 89. Uh, but also when I was at 2WS, there were <clears throat> TV and radio legends like Steve Raymond there, um, Steve Blander, who was a multi-award winning newsreader in Sydney radio and still is reading for TUE. Steve was uh, the newsreader at 2WS when I was there. So um, I was able to learn f with some very, very good people uh, over the years. And there are many, many, many other well-known journalists um, who, whose paths I crossed, not just as colleagues, but um, out on the road. In fact, some of the top Channel 7, Channel 9 and Channel 10 journos of the last four or five years um, were blokes that um, out, were out on the road when I was, when I was just starting out. Uh, doing police rounds, court reporting and things like that. Um, and I say blokes because uh, they were predominantly in those days. Of course, it's very different now. There are far more women, thankfully, um, out doing those sort of roles. But, but back then, the, the guys, uh, the people that were doing those police rounds were, uh, on TV anyway, were, were primarily men. But that's all changed, of course, thank, which is good. Mm. You had lots of different roles there at uh, 2WS. You ended up moving to sport. Tell me what that was like for you. Well, the funny part of that was, you know, I, how would you describe that? It's, um, I think, I think the average person, the average sports fan, would would um, identify with it when someone says, you know, you're out doing hard news stories, and that can be quite depressing. Um, and uh, and then suddenly someone says to you, um, you know, we'd like you to do be the main sports guy, because um, you know, whenever you've done sport for us, we like what you do. And I just thought that's crazy. Um, I never thought of doing sport as anything but just fun. I never thought of it as a job. When I was a kid, I used to pretend play, uh, you know, horse racing, motor racing, football games, all kinds of football, um, on on the floor of the bedroom and call them cricket. I used to have my own cricket matches, you know, with the with those test match cardboard games, <laughs> and, and I used to keep records of everything um, and. Uh, had my own handwritten records. I spent way too much time mucking around reliving sporting events on the bedroom floor in the backyard. In the backyard, I used to have a wall that um, that Dad and I built uh, when we built a pantry at the back of the house for Mum. It was a brick wall, and it became a perfect tennis wall. So I'm hitting tennis balls against that wall for hours a day. It became a reasonable tennis player as well. And I was, but I was also calling the points, pretending I was Bjorn Borg and I was playing John McEnroe. Um, <laughs> all that stuff uh, in the backyard, playing soccer and football with my mates. Um, uh, of course, we weren't in an AFL area, but funnily enough, someone gave me an AFL board game, would you believe, back in those days. So I even had a, a fair bit of knowledge for a New South Wales boy of, of AFL back in those days. Of course, it was VFL then, but... Um, you know, all that stuff. I was madly into sport, but to me it was nothing serious. You know, it was just a hobby. But to be actually paid to talk about it, I thought it was the biggest joke out. And um, anyway, it, it just went from there after the Olympic Games in Seoul. Ken got me to do some part-time work for them, doing voiceovers for their uh, you know various packages because their main reporters were actually over in Korea. Um, so they needed somebody back in Sydney to coordinate local sport. And um, 
it went from there. They, they offered me a full-time job just uh, a month or two after that. How was it for you, like, as, as, a, as you said, like getting paid to do something that you love in a way and working at Channel 10 alongside Tim Webster as well? What was that like? It must have been, you must have been pinching yourself in a way, I reckon. Well, when I got to 10, um, there was Tim there, of course, as I said, and Kerry ann Kennelly. Um, Mike Gibson, you know, from Channel 9, now doing the back page on Foxtel. Gibbo was at probably the peak of his powers in those days. He'd just been signed over from 9 to 10 for an absolute fortune, uh, which was a big story in those days. Um, and uh, Greg Evans was hosting Perfect Match. You may be too young to remember that, but others might. Um, it, they, they were sort of uh, pretty big days at 10, and also 10 had the rugby league rights. And it was Rex Mossop, uh, Ray Warren, Ian Maurice and Graham Hughes were the four main callers of rugby league. Um, and Channel 10 was a pioneering force in sports coverage in those days. And, of course, they had the rights to the Seoul Olympics in 88, as I said. So it was a very big time for 10. Funnily enough, uh, not long after I joined them, it all started to slide. <laughs> the extravagances of the day began to tell and uh, the network went into a deep, deep uh, recession and almost disappeared completely. Um, so the tough times they're going through now are not the first time they've been through that. Um, so funnily enough, I, I um, had a very brief, very brief year or two looking at TV at, at its most extravagant. Those days will never be repeated. Um, television networks now, quite rightly, are more frugal and you know run more efficiently. It was more like Hollywood in those days. Unfortunately, it, it sort of took a downturn before I could really reap the benefits. You know, people were people were flying to Hawaii to do stories on whatever they felt like. You know, it was, it was quite quite um, extravagant, and um, I, I never got to uh, do any of those funny things. But um, it, it uh, became very dramatic after that, and of course, uh, that's when ten after it had been kind of reinvented, um, mainly due to the uh, the hard work of new investors and, and the primary one of those was Canwest, which is a Canadian media company. Um, it started to specialise in niche sports and that's where basketball came in and uh, and things like triathlon and the Uncle Toby's Ironman series, which was uh, very successful for 10. Um, and so they're the kind of sports that I started to get in when I you know, gained a bit more experience and started to do hosting and commentary and things like that. Um, that, that's where I started to come through. Well, that's fantastic. 1992 was the year that Channel 10 got the NBL rights and you got told that you that you're going to be anchoring the coverage along with Steve Carfino, someone that we interviewed a couple of weeks ago. And he said that the greatest bit of advice in television that he received was from you. And the quote was, be yourself, the viewers aren't stupid. And <laughs> to this yeah. day, your working with you at Channel 10 was his number, is his number one highlight from his broadcasting career oh uh, yeah look I, I he and I had a great time we're good mates we're still good mates and um, it, it um, oh look I you know I wrote a piece recently um, on the, on the internet uh, for the for news limited about those sort of days and I was very lucky to to work with guys uh, and women who who were just great to work with um, in terms of, you know, the, the sporting experts that I came up against. I've always been um, a great admirer of, uh, of athletes and sports people. Um, and um, because I was such a, a keen player of sport, at, at, you know, at a very low level, but still very keen participant, I, I like to think that um, I, I tried to get an affinity with the people I, I, um, I worked with. And... And I think 
I don't know. There's, there's sort of a difference between being a total fan and, and someone who tries to understand um, what the sport's about. And um, and I think particularly with Steve, I mean, basketball is a sport I only played for the school and things like that. You know, I played in the high school team, things like that. But I was never a great player at all. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was just an instant, you know, this is a great sport. I really enjoy it. I've always played it since I was a kid. And I don't know, there's just that affinity there. And, you know, one guy's a top player who played for, you know, his college team and was probably should have played NBA, but was only narrowly missed out, you know, after the um, after he was drafted. Um, we just got on like a house on fire. And, um, you know, you also, we also had the same sense of humour and things like that. So we just had a great time doing what we did. And, uh, and, and then became my career. If I was going to write a book about being a co-commentator, I'd call it The Other Guy. Because... Um, <laughs> Whether it was Steve or, you know, the triathletes like Mark Dragon that I that I worked with or, you know, later on when I worked with, of course, Barry Sheen and all the guys in motor racing, every time I was out in public, that, that all, you know, the girls would all scream out, oh, my God, there's Steve Carcino. Oh, wow, and, and there's, there's that other guy. And <laughs> so I always became the other guy. You know, I was the guy hanging out with the guy who was famous, you know. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that. But... I, didn't, I didn't mind at all because it was great. It was um, yeah, it was good experience. And, and I think one of the things that I always tried to do whenever I got involved in something like that is even though I might have played the sport myself or, you know, had some knowledge of it, I would sit down and say, okay, teach me everything you know. So that, you know, my attitude was that, you know, I'm not the expert. I'm working with the expert. And um, I'm just a play-by-play caller. And um, I'm there to sort of, you know, pose questions, bring up the right subjects and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the expert is always the expert and, and that they're, the, they're the people the audience turn to for, you know, the, the decisive knowledge. I'm just there to sort of help help keep the excitement going, you know, and, and sort of throw in the sort of uh, the non-expert information like, you know, the statistics and things like that. Well, yeah, you had plenty of fun times at Stephen. It was good to see you two reunite a couple of years ago. I forget what the competition was I think it was like a top-end yeah. challenge in, MB- in the NBL or something what was it yeah, it was a Adelaide it was an Adelaide um, yeah it was an Adelaide like a 2020 thing they just had this week-long challenge yeah with these teams um, and it was just the sort of same sort of format as the 2020 cricket uh, you know tournament um, they, they haven't done it since which is a shame because they went within a whisker of really coming up with something successful it was made for television so there was no crowd and it was and it was done during the week so it was very difficult to get a crowd there anyway they picked the right town because Adelaide loves its basketball. But, um, gee, it was a great concept. I'd love to see someone come up with it again. Um, and, and, of course, and the NBL players uh, be allowed to play in it because there was a problem at the time. The NBL guys weren't allowed to play. So there were sort of um, ABA players and sort of a few other people from around the traps. But but I have to say, it was a great, great idea. And we just, I don't know, it was weird because Steve and I hadn't actually called together as you say, since the mid to late 90s. And, um, but we just jumped, jumped into the seats and bang, it just went <laughs> just straight into it again. It was really funny. Uh, you know, the only trouble, you know, obviously we, we had to take a little bit of time getting to know the players and those guys we didn't know. But, gee, that didn't take long. Like, the good thing about basketball is there's only ever five people on the court at a time. So yeah, not many names remember to remember. Players, are you struggling? <laughs> yeah, true that. Well, I managed to watch that, that competition throughout the week in between studies, but yeah, I thought it was fantastic as well, and it would be great to see it return sometime in the, in the future. Now, you mentioned yeah. that that was a great concept. Another great concept was you creating an NBL board game. Tell me about that. 
Oh, gosh, I don't know why I did that, I tell you. I, I, as you know, NBL was booming, the, the, the trading card thing was booming, um, and it just seemed like a, um, a great idea to sort of um, cross-promote the game and, 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 um, and give it a bit of status and uh, also make a few bucks, you know, if it was possible. But everyone told me it was mad, but uh, I don't know. I, my wife and I went through a... Uh, some tumultuous months sort of developing it and getting it up and running. I mean, for, for someone who had no knowledge of marketing or or gaming or anything like that. And then, of course, um, it was probably uh, not well-timed because I think, you know, the, the Fantasy League video game concept was only just starting to take root at that time, back in the mid-'90s. And, and so it, it was only a, you know, it wasn't long before you know, what the, the highly sophisticated games are now, like that um, those uh, EPL games, you know, where you can you can actually watch the teams playing on the screen as well as manage your team. I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling what they can do now. But this was like a management game where you use trading cards and you put together your own basketball club. You bought the players you wanted and, and then tried to win a comp with them. So uh, it was all done with trading cards and dice and things like that. And uh, we sold quite a few. I think a, a, quite a few diehard fans bought them, and we managed to escape the whole, whole experience without going broke. But uh, it was it was exciting and interesting, and yeah, it was something I had to crack at. It was, uh, yeah, at those days, we, we were all very very excited for basketball and where it was going. It's it's a shame that it uh, it fizzled out the way it did, but hopefully we can sort of get back to something like that in future. Well, yeah, free to air coverage of the NBL has proven to help out a bit in terms of crowd figures and, and um, viewing figures as well. I have to just finish up on the NBL game. Do you still have any copies of it at home? I've got a few downstairs here. I think I've got about a dozen of them down in the box somewhere down in the garage. Well, I'm hoping that they'll be like a rare artwork that after I die, my, my kids can sell them for a million dollars, but I don't know if, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> Well, I had a look on eBay, and there's no copies available even on eBay to buy, so it would be a pretty nah. good collector's item, I'd say. Yeah, look, it's, yeah, those trading cards, I don't know what's happened to trading cards. Um, they've, they've disappeared as well. Do they still have trading cards? I, I think, think, they do, I think they're they? more popular in America now, but, yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, that, that whole thing. I think when Jordan retired, it's a shame. We, we used to say to the NBL, you, you cannot hitch your future to the, to the NBA. You, you have to create an identity of your own so that you know if the NBA because that was a fad the NBA was a was a subculture in those days kids were wearing the singlets and all those things now that that was a fashion related subculture which was going to pass as all fashion subcultures do so once it ceased to be trendy to wear those you know singlets with Jordan on them or bird and all that sort of thing um what was going to happen so and, and sure enough, the whole trading card thing, the singlets, the, the, the NBA street culture, all that sort of stuff, that kind of died off. And um, the NBL, really, by that stage, should have been, should have marketed and promoted itself as, um, as a very good, you know, second-tier competition with its own stars. There were a lot of young Australian guys who were coming through at that time who were dunking the ball and were very athletic players and uh, I know at 10, we were really pushing them to try and focus on that so as to create a, you know, a bigger, more solid base for the future. Well, yeah. But unfortunately, it didn't work that way. 
Well, yeah, someone someone that wasn't much of a fan of basketball when I was growing up, though, I did manage to even get myself a hold of a number 10 gays Melbourne Tigers jersey as well when I was a kid. So it did yeah. certainly work in the mid-90s, of course, and hopefully it does work again in the future. Now, a sport that I'm most passionate about would be motorsport, and you moved to motorsport in 1997 when Channel 10 got the broadcasting rights for the V8 supercars. Yep. Tell me, what was that like taking on that new challenge? Well, again, um, when I was a kid, um, we were big fans of motor racing. Motorcycle racing, not quite so much, because that really started to take off, of course, when Wayne Gardner, um, you know, was successful. But being a sports journal, I was very, very familiar with Wayne's exploits and, and, and had a strong knowledge and was very supportive of, um, of motorcycle racing in those days. But um, when it came to, to the V8 supercars, or Australian touring car racing as it was before then, um, if you lived in country Australia, you were either a Holden family or a Ford family. Um, one of my best mates at school was a mad Ford fan and I was a mad Holden fan. I was a huge Peter Brock fan and um, my dad had a Kingswood and, and that's the way you grew up in, in the country in those days. So that's where my... And I was also very keen on driving. I don't know where that came from, but I've always liked... I was never one to, you know, go and create my own car or, uh, you know, build one or anything like that. I was never sort of that mechanically minded. But I did love driving. I've always had a passion for driving. I, I don't know where that comes from. I just enjoyed it. I, I guess, again, in the country, you get to drive cars on good roads and, you know, open roads, and you can actually enjoy the experience of, you know, pushing a car a little bit. So with all that background, when they came to me and said, oh, look, we might be getting the rights to the V8s, and we, we're dev first of all, we're getting the rights to the, the uh, as it was in those days, it wasn't MotoGP, it was just the World Motorcycle Championship, and they said, you're going to be working with Barry Sheen. And they said, and then we're going to try and get the rights to the V8 Formula 1. We're going to Indy cars, we're going to try and buy up all the motorsport and make a, you know, make something solid out of it as a product. And I, I thought, well, that's a great idea for a start. But firstly, Barry Sheen, what a character. Like, I'd interviewed him um, when he was still working for Nine uh, with Daryl. And um, I knew what a great character he was. And, you know, we got on reasonably well, but we barely knew each other. So anyway, Baz came down and uh, we had a meeting and, and I, I did the same thing as I did with Steve. I sat him down and said, all right, tell me whatever you can about motorcycle racing. Tell me what I need to know. But most importantly, tell me what not to say so that the fans don't think I'm a goose. That's the main thing. You know, like, particularly with motor racing, and, and it's hard not to be looked, as a, looked upon as a goose with motor racing fans because they're extremely technical, a lot of them, and they're very fussy. And uh, they're, 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 some of them are very hard to please, particularly F1 fans, um, because they take it very seriously. You could get the you could get the um, exchange rate wrong with the dollar. You could get the interest rate, RBA interest rate wrong. No one will ring up and and, and complain. But if, but if you mispronounce a guy's name in the Formula One championship, you'll get twenty phone calls. <laughs> so you know it's <laughs> it's that kind of audience. So. Anyway, I sat down with Baz and I said, right. And, and he sat me down and we went through race after race and he showed me everything. He, we looked at how the guys rode. He dissected everything for me. Um, he said, now, if this happens, don't go, oh, uh, big deal. It's not a big deal. Um, if this happens, that is critical. People don't realise it, but if the rider does that, that's, that's actually quite dodgy. So get me in on that and I'll explain it. So... Uh, note by note, we went through every race and um, from the previous season and sat down there for hours and hours, and he basically taught me all the nuances. Um, and I, you know, not being a rider was probably my biggest 
challenge. But then again, you know, one of the dangers you get when, a, when and it gets back to what I was saying to you before, a lot of it's about perception. Now, you, you as a commentator might be an amateur motorcycle rider. You might fancy yourself as, a, as you know as a fairly experienced rider. It doesn't matter because you've never ridden in a championship race. And, you know, even though you might know what it's like to move your body on a motorcycle and, and, and get it to do what you want it to do, the fact of the matter is the audience doesn't view you as an expert. So, you know, really the person who should be giving the expert opinions and explaining what's going on is the person who, of course, is there as the expert who's done it before. Um, and, and, and basically, the, 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 I think I remember Barry saying to me, he said, you know, don't ever make the mistake. He said, you'll learn a lot from me, and after we've done it for a few years, you'll probably know a lot. You'll, you'll feel like you know what's going on. He said, but even then, don't stick your neck out and start giving opinions. Because really, the opinions are my department and, the, and calling the race is your department. And, and that, that, to me, made perfect sense. I've always felt that was the, you know, the best way to do things. And I still think today that... You know, one of the biggest mistakes a play-by-play uh, -play commentator can make is start sounding like an expert. Um, even if they know what they're talking about and even if what they've said is right, the audience doesn't want to hear it from them. Mm. They want to hear it from the person who's done it before. Mm, very true. Now, 1997 as well saw the um, introduction of RPM, an old motorsport show, basically. What was it like for you yeah. getting involved? How did that come about, and how was it for you having to learn about all the different sports? You know, you had rallying, V8, F1, kart, World Series, and, you know, the motor, motorbikes as well, back in the day as well. Yeah, well, the um, it was it's a sort of a... You probably noticed over the years, it's a, a pretty good tactic of television networks that when they get the rights to a sport, they have associated shows. They, you know, highlight shows and magazine-style shows to complement what they're doing with their live coverage. And it's always a good idea because it gives people a chance to catch up and summarise what they've missed in the course of the week. And also, of course, more importantly, it leverages advertising. You know, you, you, you give your advertisers better bang for their buck by having a magazine-style show that they can then, you know, sponsor and, and, and sort of get a greater involvement in. So as a commercial idea, it's good, and for the fans, it's always a good catch-up. And, and motor racing really hadn't had a show like that um, on TV. I'm going to find out why, to be honest. I suppose because maybe the, the, the networks before, firstly, hadn't recognised that there are a lot of motorsport fans out there, and secondly maybe none of them had managed to capture the entire market like we were at the time. I think it, it took us a little while to get Formula One. But uh, back at 97, as you say, we had nearly everything else that mattered. And um, and so we figured that if we could capture that audience, you know, it was a, it was a big advertising... Uh, it was big advertising revenue. It was a, a real money spinner for 10. And um, we, uh, we didn't have massive production costs. Um, and... Uh, we, we managed to capture an entire audience for the advertisers in, in one stop with RPM. And I know that, you know, the motorcycle fans didn't want to see too much touring car racing and vice versa and all those things. And, and, and I was quite surprised in later years to realise how um, some, some motorsport fans, you know, aren't, aren't particularly excited about other forms of motorsport. But we always managed to get the balance so that everyone enjoyed it, you know? It, 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 even if you weren't a huge fan of the bikes, you were still happy to watch a five or six minute, you know, um, magazine style story on somebody or, you know, watch some highlights. So I think we, we, we did a pretty good job of, of pleasing nearly everybody without annoying too many people, you know what I mean? Yeah. Getting the balance right. And, um, and we had a lot of fun too. From the, from the first, from, obviously Barry had a lot to do with that because Barry and I, were like a couple of naughty schoolboys. Um, <laughs> we used to, 
always giggle and laugh at double meanings and we'd always have a joke about something going on and you know it was if it wasn't verbal we'd be playing a trick on somebody or on each other and um we just hit it off um i don't know it was just our personalities i suppose we're very very different people really in many ways but he was a worldwide megastar and i was just a bum but we we had um we had something going there with our senses of humor i think and uh we we had so much fun anyway um that we tried to exhibit that on the show and and so every rpm was just I suppose if they filmed what was going on in the commercial breaks, you'd have an even more popular show because it was pretty funny. <laughs> Maybe for like and, the and later it, hours of night. Oh yeah, that well that's true too. You know, I tell you what, um, there was one funny. Um, there was one time they were calling the braces, calling the races. Uh, it was towards the end there when Rusty and uh, Daryl were calling the two fifties. Hang on, who was it that night? Yeah, now I was calling the. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was calling the two. 50s and the one two fives with uh, Daryl, I think, and Baz would come in and call the MotoGP with me. Yeah. But Baz, Baz would be because he was based in Queensland. He'd stay in a hotel uh, not far from ten for the weekends when we're calling, and then to do RPM. And Baz would have a nice dinner and a few drinks, you know, before the race was due to start, which is usually <laughs> about ten ten thirty. Yeah. And he, he sometimes he'd bring a bottle of wine into the studio, and uh, there's Daryl and I calling the race. And in walks Baz this one particular night, and he's had a few too many. And uh, he's brought this bottle of wine in, and uh, <laughs> and we've got all this technical gear set up on the desk, you know, the microphones, the mixers, all that sort of things, all sitting on the desk. And we've got the monitor, and we've got laptop computers uh, to to try and because at that stage we we're getting internet. Uh, the internet was uh, tele. Uh, screening the lap times and it was a little bit behind it would be about half a lap behind but at least it gave us a guide as to who what sort of lap times they're doing because calling from a studio across on the other side of the world is never easy um we always enjoyed calling at the track more but but at least with this technology we're able to keep an eye on lap times and things like that so we had all this stuff arrayed out in front of us and Baz walks in he's had a couple of drinks he's pouring a wine for me and for, ba- uh, for Ga- Daz while we're calling the race and then knocks a whole bottle over all over the equipment. And, of course, we got the giggles, oh, no. then, didn't we? So we started laughing our heads off. And, and I had to put the microphone down so people couldn't hear us laughing. And all I can remember is our poor director, Mike Purcell, who's still a mate of mine today, screaming in our ears saying, Say something! Say something! Because all you can see is these bikes going around and no commentary. Because we're laughing our heads off rolling on the floor. Um, oh yeah, there was some uh, a lot of stupid little things like that happened over the years, um, and uh, <laughs> but anyway, that, that's uh, they were great times, really good times. There was a million and one things went on behind the scenes, but uh, of course, having said that, I mean, don't get the impression that we, you know, it, it was it was highly professional. We we would spend hours preparing for events and shows and and commentary, um, literally hours going through stats. Barry uh, and Daz, people like that, would look at the timesheets. They'd, they'd be nitpicking every every bit of data they could find to get, you know, to find out what was going on. Making phone calls to people at the track, and we would discuss everything. Um, our whole lives revolved around what was going on um, in relation to whatever telecast we were working on. And there would be even the dinner. You know, we'd we'd get together for dinner of a night if we're on location somewhere. You know, for the the Gold Coast Indy or whether it was a V8 supercar race, whatever the event was, we'd be spending every breathing hour discussing what we're going to say in commentary and what we're going to say in the show. So 
even though we had a lot of fun and there were jokes and all that sort of thing, the preparation was was unbelievable. And um, particularly with people like Neil Crompton on board. Now, Cromley is the most professorial, you know, preparer you could ever get. He never left a stone unturned. If there was the slightest element of doubt about what was going on with a car or a bike or the people behind it, um, Cromley simply had to know. So he would run across to pit lane and find out if he had to find out. Um, There was meticulous preparation. I think the audience realised that. There was a a massive depth of knowledge there. Um, You know, myself and Greg Rust would do, and Lee Diffie, of course, and Mark Osler, we used to do enormous amounts of homework to prepare for these events. And, of course, the experts, Daryl and Baz and whoever else was with us, Cromley, of course, there would be um, that, you know, that first-hand knowledge. And, and it was we, we took it very seriously but had a great time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, it definitely, the hard work definitely paid off because, as I mentioned, I was eight, nine years old when I first watched the motorsport telecast on Channel 10 and it was the V8s and then followed by RPM and all that. And I was someone that was into all the drivers, not just Craig Lowndes. I, I monitored all the drivers, even the Privateers Cup back in the day where you had Steve oh, yeah, Reid, yeah. Trevor Ashby, Simon Emazides and Peter Dorman and lots of other, you know, lesser-known drivers. But I followed yeah. it all to the bit and you, you guys did a fantastic job covering it. I have to ask, you did mention that great moment. What were, were some of the other great moments from your motorsport days and broad, broadcasting days for that matter? Oh, gee, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there. Um, oh, I don't know. I, I, well, I mentioned I, I did write last week about parachuting out of a plane, you know, out of a helicopter in Adelaide. I did a tandem jump. That was for the Eclipse 500, and we did land in the grounds of a mental health facility. And um, <laughs> and with my red beret co-jumper and, the, and a young lady walked up to us and, and said, "What? who are you guys? And... We said, oh, we just jumped out of a helicopter from 10,000 feet. And she said, <laughs> and they think I'm crazy. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, that's a true story. That, and and um, I've driven a lot of racing cars. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. I've had some great times. Uh, oh, look, there's too many to mention. I, I did a whole... Um, I went out one day to, um, well, the most famous one that not many people know about, but the most famous one was when I crashed a Formula Holden out at Oran Park. Um, I'd driven quite a lot of Formula Ford to get used to open wheel racing, get a feel for it. Um, and that was only, you know, just doing laps on a track, no racing or anything. But um, there was a um, uh, there was a, a, a driving facility out there at the time and they had, a, they had a Formula Holden, which they just bought, and it hadn't really been tuned or anything, like, suspension-wise. Um, it was still, you know... Not a, not a great handling car, and they told me, look, we'll, we'll give you a run in this. It's pretty, you know, the power-to-weight ratio in Formula Holden is pretty scary, I have to say. Um, and they um, they said, look, just take it easy, uh, and whatever you do, if you lose it, just put the clutch in and let it spin to a halt, and it'll be okay. So I did a few laps, and I was getting a bit more confident. that There was a, uh, a very, very tight right-hander at the bottom of Orange Park, which no longer exists because it's all gone. But um, pretty notorious right-hander there where you're coming in hard, turn right, and there's a brick wall in front of you and there's no runoff. Um, not usually a big issue for most people, but in this case, I started to lose it. And, and, of course, instead of doing exactly what I was told and just whacking the clutch in and letting it spin to a halt, I thought for a second, I thought, I can regather this, I'll, I can drive out of this. So I got on the gas and tried to straighten it up and, unfortunately, just drove it into an even bigger spin and, um, bang, hit the wall. Oh, no. Um, 
So fortunately, it didn't hit it too hard. I wasn't going that fast. I, I don't think I could have been. I, it was coming out of the corner, so I was probably doing no more than about 80 k's, but um, still, it was a bit of a shock. Yeah, it must, and, um, must have been embarrassing walking back to damage. the pit wall. How much was that, uh, sorry? Very embarrassing. $2,000 damage. I won't say how much more than that, but um, yes, I'd, uh, some people looked after me on that occasion. But um, there was a few other... Um, I never had any other crashes, but I did a... Um, I got McCann's licence, just a provisional licence before that, and um, oh, I, I drove everything. You know, there's... Um, um, from Evos to Porsches... To NASCAR, drove a NASCAR at Calder. Oh, really? That the Aussie NASCARs? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kim Jane. Uh, uh, Bob Jane, uh, yeah, Thunderdome. Bob, Bob Jane's, yeah, but I think it was Kim who took me out that day. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, what else? Uh, oh, I was in a Formula One two seater at, um, at Manucor, uh in, in France, and uh, that was pretty amazing. Did, did the two seater thing on the. Um, on the Yamaha M1 before the Ducati, before Ducati did it, I um, I did the two-seater bike thing at Phillip Island with Randy Mamela. Uh, that was probably the scariest thing I've ever done. That was quite amazing because Mick and Dad's had briefed Randy beforehand said, give this guy a hard time. So oh, <laughs> the hell out of me. And I was on a... Uh, also did some um, sidecar. Um, I was... I was going to do a story on a sidecar racing team, a, a husband and wife team, lovely people. Um... And they were um, they were out at Eastern Creek, and they offered me a ride. And um, anyway, my boss told me I wasn't allowed to do it. Um, that was before the Formula Holden thing, but I went out and did it anyway. Oh, uh, and so it wasn't filmed because we didn't want any evidence of me doing it. Um, but it, I tell you what, riding on a sidecar in those days... Which end were like, you at? Um, which end? Yeah, the side or the fr- or fronting the motorbike? Oh, no, I was on the side. Oh, yeah. I was on the side. Um, I could just... Have you ever seen those big silver platters that they use at weddings and stuff, you know? Yeah. It was like sitting on one of those and going around a track at a couple hundred k's. It was just unbelievable. And um, he said to me, uh, the guy said to me, um, you know, don't shift your weight too much. You'll, you'll probably think you've got the hang of it after a couple of laps and you'll try and move your weight around like the real guys do. He said... Don't do that. If you make a false move, you'll kill us. So um, he said, basically, don't shift around much. Just stay where you are, and I won't go too hard, and it'll be okay. Basically, just hang on. Um, <laughs> although he did say, you know, um, <laughs> shift in on the corner, you know, obviously shift towards the apex on the corner, the tight corners, and shift away on the other side, you know. But I did, there was a little bit of that. But um, apart from that, you know, I, I think... I think he was afraid that if I actually went the wrong way, you know, we'd be in big trouble. Um, so it was, uh, that was quite exciting, but very scary. Um, but it, that was just on the motor racing side of things. There's, um, you know, like I said, the, the practical jokes, you know, I don't know, stupid stuff we used to do to each other. You know, Greg Rust is such a methodical, meticulous, you know, detailed broadcaster and does a fantastic job. He hates getting anything wrong, so he, he does everything right, you know, and he's very methodical and organised. So, of course, we used to hide all his notes. Uh, oh, no. We, we used to, when he was doing his pit lane reporting, when he dressed up, Rusty had dressed up in a, you know, had to, he had to have the full suit on because of fire regulations. So he had to have the full driver's suit on with the, you know, proper latest gear. And and um, he'd be, um, 
not long before we went on air, Rusty would have to get out in pit lane quite early and get set up and rehearse and make sure all his communications worked and everything. And and he was, of course, very hyped up about it because he'd get very intense because it's, you know, serious safety issues at stake. So we'd make sure that we hid all his clothing as well. We'd hide his clothing all over the place so that he couldn't find it and just he'd be late and oh, just everything we could do to just stuff him up and... And uh, we do that to each other as well. We just, you know, just stupid boyish stuff, you know, schoolboy stuff, really. But um, I don't know. We all just seem to get a lot of pleasure out of it. But <laughs> yeah, well, it does seem like you had a lot of fun. Well, Baz, uh, Baz tried to get me arrested in Perth. He drove. He made me drive down a pedestrian mall because he didn't want to walk. And um, <laughs> as soon as we parked in this pedestrian mall, he went and found a police officer and said, go and arrest this guy because he's driven on a pedestrian mall. And uh, so this police officer came up to have a talk to me and I could de- I started getting quite uh, worried and then I could hear Baz laughing his head off. He was rolling on the ground laughing behind a post somewhere. Um, and, and just the old-fashioned stuff that all the race drivers used to do when you're driving hire cars. You, um, well, look, I, don't, I can't say too much because, you know, but the hire cars used to get a good workout, put it that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we, they were thoroughly tested, always returned in immaculate condition. <laughs> For sure. I've got an interesting story. Just, you mentioned Greg Rust as well. From my childhood, because um, Greg fronted the um, broadcasting in 2000 for the V8 Supercars after Lee Diffie went to America. And, yep. um, you know, I was someone that watched every race religiously, basically, and, you know, took note of all the stats as well. And one day I went to a race, I think it was either at Calder or Sandown, and my dad took me up to Greg Rust because um, I'd pointed it like, you know, I'd watched the coverage and I was like, wait, Greg Rust made a mistake here. And then my dad took my dad took me up to Greg Rust, and he's like, my son has something to say to you. And I was about, what, like 10 years old at the time. And I told Greg Rust some mistakes he made. Like One of them was like, oh, you mentioned, yeah, Steve Ellery actually finished third in the 1996 Bathurst 1000, and you said the 1995 1000. So... <laughs> Jeez, your dad put you in there, didn't he? <laughs> he sure did. And, you know, I was too young to, you know, think of what I was saying or that. But, yeah, but, yeah, that's just how an interesting... Rusty would have taken that pretty well. Oh, he? He, he, was, he was pretty good about it. But, yeah, just an interesting story there I thought I might share with you. <laughs> oh, dear. That's, yeah, that, they're the worst things. Um, but, look, I find it myself. You know, um, sometimes you don't even know you say things when you say them. And I, and I sit home, I've sat at home watching TV and countless times you sit there and you hear something in commentary and you... You go, either that's wrong or why did you say that? And and then I tell you what, it's a bit different when you're sitting there in the heat of the battle uh, trying to spew out statistics, especially if it's something you, um, you you know, you haven't got your notes with you and you're trying to remember and, and uh, yeah, that happens. And um, it happens plenty of times. But uh, it's it's difficult at times and, and um, it's uh, it's a bit like the old story. You know, it's, it, it, it's uh, the quiz shows. Everyone thinks they're really good at the quiz shows. Like, well, I don't know, say when Sale of the Century was on, all those sort of things, people used to sit at home and answer all the questions. Then they go in a studio and try and do it. Totally different. Totally different. It is um, it is harder than people think. And I know that on a few occasions we've had people actually do it for the first time or sit in the box with us over the years, and they shake their heads and, and realise that it, there's actually a lot more to it than uh, than people think. But, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, like I said, it's meticulous meticulous sport and the thing with motor racing is that as you know there's so much more going on um at an event uh than there is say in a, on a football field or a cricket pitch or a tennis court 
um, uh, uh, you know, most of what you're talking about in most sports is happening right in front of you, and, and it's a, a pretty simple equation what's going on. Um, but in motor racing, there's so many layers to it. You yeah, know, you've well, got the person who's piloting the machine, you've got the people who built the machine, the people who are maintaining the machine, the people who are funding the machine, and um, there's an extraordinary amount of, of information that you have to download each weekend to, to just get your head around these events. Yeah, exactly. Motorsport is one of the only events where, you know, yeah, you have a television break and you're missing out on the action, you know, whereas soccer yeah. and footy, you know, you have you have breaks in between to, you know... That, that was the other great complaint we always had too is with, with commercial TV is do you insert the commercial break and come back live or do you put in a commercial break and then come back where you left it but three minutes delayed? Yeah. Well, um, that That's always been... The, and, 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 and look, honestly, you'll never please everybody because different fans have different different preferences some fans have to see it live no matter what and they're quite happy to miss a little chunk of the race to do that but other fans want to see every second of the action therefore they're prepared to see it slowly you know delayed as it goes on so there's all these considerations too yeah there sure is and there's definitely like a lot of people arguing a few years ago with the Bathurst 1000 coverage with Channel 7 delaying it during the ad breaks as well and there's lots of people yeah. that had had lots of stuff to say about that. Now, after you worked in motorsport till about 2006, you, mo you commentated on many different sports here, as I mentioned. You went on to do uh, the 2007 Rugby Rugby Union World Cup. What was that like for you? Well, again, rugby is a sport I grew up watching, you know, and um, didn't play a lot of it because our town was mainly a league or soccer town, actually, but um, did play a bit of rugby. Um, but... Uh, it was amazing uh, to, to do it. When I found out we had the rights, and then I found out it was in France, I mean, gee, that was, uh, that was something else. I mean, I had uh, an apartment in Saint-Germain, which is one of the classiest and, you know, nicest areas of Paris. And from there we did um, uh, a couple of studio shows a week, plus we'd race off all over the country doing the matches. Um, and uh, the Australian team in the early rounds was based at Montpellier. And um, so we'd, we'd take the fast train down to there. I think it was about three hours to Lyon, three and a half hours to Montpellier. And uh, again, I'd never been on one of those very fast trains. Um, I had spent a bit of time in Paris, but not a lot. And that was just amazing. I wish, only, my only regret is that, you know, quite a few people took their families with them and, and the wives and children sort of, you know, were able to do their normal Paris thing for a couple of months. I, I couldn't do that because I had uh, one... One of my kids was doing year 10 exams. The other one was doing an HSC. And um, so it was a really bad time for us, actually. So none of the family went over. I think my brother-in-law came over and camped out with me for a few weeks. He's a keen sports fan. But apart from that, it was, um, yeah, it was just living the life of a Parisian for two months. And uh, an amazing experience. Oh, I do love Paris, too. I can't get enough of the joint. Now, a couple of years later, you went on to Thursday Night Live. Another show that I loved, it was a brilliant concept as well, because apart from... Wide World of Sports, which has recently returned to Channel 9, there hasn't really been that much done in terms of a variety sports show? No, and I think the footy show was probably, you know, it's, it's, it's been a bit over the top a lot of times in recent years um, in, in the humour department. And um, I, I think the key was um, Thursday Night Live. We, 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 well, for a start, Channel 1 probably didn't get as much uh, marketing as it, it perhaps should have. And that the new digital channels were in their infancy in those days. They've since taken root. I think more people now with digital TVs and HDTVs, they're more comfortable with seeing all these other optional channels around the place. But back then, 
which was only a few years ago, but still, it, it was in its infancy. And I, I don't think a lot of people either had access to those channels or, or knew they existed. Um, and um, and so, you know, it was it was uh, a pioneering time. And but, but at the same time, you're able to do a show like Thursday Night Live and experiment without, you know, the program managers being too worried about it. Um, you know, there weren't the pressures that, that are associated with being on your, your so-called main channel. So... We, we did experiment a lot, and I don't think all of it worked. I think that the, the, the fact that the show was broken up into, you know, that sort of panel show, you had my interview, and we also had, you know, the panels on the, the two main football codes. Um, I think, you know, I, I, for example, in New South Wales and Queensland, you know, people were sort of not, not waiting around for the uh, the AFL segment, and, in, and you know, the rest of Australia wasn't too thrilled with the NRL segment. So, you know, there, there was a whole lot of sort of sorting out to do there, and I think the two panels that we had on the two footy codes evolved into their own shows, uh, which you saw in the game plan and before the game um, last year on Thursdays. So, you know, there was a lot of experimentation, but geez, we had some fun. And I think, yes, the, the panel show was sort of one of those things where it was... Most shows now, if they have a panel, they get a comedian on. Um, we've seen that with The Project and, and, and many other, you know, different formats. And it's, it's a successful thing, but... Our, think, our thinking was let's get journos and, and athletes who have a bit of wit about them and a bit of sense of humour and, and so you've got the best of both worlds. You've got, you've got the expertise but you've also got people who are prepared to have a laugh you know, and take the mickey out of their sport or different sports and so um, that, that's what we're aiming for with that show um, and, uh, and I, I think you know, Lizzie Ellis and Nicole Livingston were fantastic. We had Lane Beasley on there as well. I mean, that, the other thing I really loved about that show is we had top-quality women uh, commentators and athletes uh, talking about sport on a regular basis, and I really liked that. Darth was fantastic, Luke Darcy, before he uh, he moved on to other things. And, of course, Mark Howard was uh, was was crazy, uh, and how he has got a great mix of, of being able to be crazy, but at the same time, he loves his sport. I mean, if you've ever listened to two people... I tell you, no matter how much you love sport, I guarantee you that if you ever listen to Mark Howard and Andy Marr talking about cricket, I guarantee it'll bore the pants off you after a couple of days because that's how long it takes them to discuss everything. Oh, really? A couple of days. <laughs> They're two great guys, good mates of mine. But, boy, do they get into the details. Whether it's a footy game or a game of cricket, it is hilarious. If you ever get an opportunity, sit down and listen to those two guys and uh, they, they discuss every nuance of, uh, of the game. It's fantastic. And, um, yeah, I met, as I mentioned, I love Thursday Night Live, and unfortunately it didn't work out, and unfortunately 1HD as a sports-only channel didn't work out because I was someone that, you know, I wasn't much of a basketball fan, but after watching the NBA coverage and, and you know, the NBL coverage in recent times, it really got me, it opened my eyes to the sport, really, and it got me to become a fan of that and many other different niche sports that were on the network, so unfortunately that yeah. didn't work out. Um, yeah, Thursday Night Live, you had lots of great interviews on there. I have to ask you about your whole career in terms of interviews, though. You've, you've interviewed Michael Jordan, Usain Bolt, um, who else? David Beckham. Um, there's so many interviews that you've done. Who, who have been some of your favourites? Yeah, look, uh, Jordan and Beckham were, were two of the most interesting ones because under the circumstances, they were, it was like interviewing royalty. Uh, Jordan was filming Space Jam at uh, the Warner Brothers Studios in LA when I went over there, and he had a, an entire marquee built for him with a full-size basketball court, uh, a training centre, a gambling centre. It was like a lounge area, but it looked like a casino because he likes playing poker for money. And it was just full-on. It, it was a playground, and he'd only just made a comeback. 
and he was training hard for the next NBA season and he had all these guys coming over and playing with him like Patrick Ewing and Charles Barkley and Reggie Miller and and um, Juwan Howard. Actually, it's funny, but Juwan Howard was a young player in those days, very young. But my son, who's 23, unfortunately, he was too young to really enjoy the years I was doing basketball. But the other day, I was showing him an old um, clip of a story that I'd done on Jordan in that place. And he just dropped dropped his, his jaw dropped. He said, that's Juwan Howard, just shooting hoops <laughs> in the background while you were talking to Jordan. And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, man. He said, Dad, finally I've been able to go away with you when you're doing that stuff. But anyway, because uh, my son Rob's a big basketball fan, among other things. But anyway, um, th- th- that was incredible because Jordan was treated like royalty. I, had to, I, you know, we, we, I even gave him gifts. You know, you know how he had those diplomatic visits where yeah, he exchanged yeah. gifts. It was just like that. And um, you know, I gave him that NBL board game that you're talking about. <laughs> he must have loved that. Well, the funny part was there was a player playing for the Geelong Supercats called Cecil Exum. Um, back in the day. And um, funnily enough, Cecil and Michael roomed together at university. Um, Now, Cecil said to me that Michael was so poor in those days that he used to actually make his own suits. Oh, wow. Really? Um, He used to to sew. Now, I I actually... And there was a few other things, to be honest with you, I can't remember, little details that, that Cecil told me about Michael back in those days. So when I first met Michael... I said, oh, Cecil Exum said to say hello, and he just dropped, he just nearly died and said, how do you know Cecil Exum? So then I told him, I'm telling him about the NBL and all that sort of stuff, and anyway, that got me in with Michael, so I was okay after that. Um, yeah, with Beckham, um, same sort of thing, massive management, massive organisation, massive number of hurdles, um, you know, we wanted to ask all these questions and all these miners telling us what we couldn't ask. By the time we sat, by the time I sat down with Beckham, basically all the miners wanted me to talk about was the weather. Um, it, it was it was crazy, and, and one of the things that annoys me most about um, you know how managed everything has become in professional sport is um, that it, it's like politics now. They're trying to put a spin on everything, and um, nothing's real anymore. So you know, it, it, everything has to be staged, and uh, it was disappointing the way the Beckham thing was all set up. I mean, it, look, it's protocol. There's nothing you can do about it. But within the confines of that, um, I did my best to sort of um, get real with him and just talk normally, person to person. And I have to say, once you start talking to the guy, he's just a normal bloke. You know, he, um, he's just an extremely highly paid, uh, very famous person. He started out as a normal bloke, and he still is pretty much a normal bloke. Um, and that, that's the good thing about some of these guys. When you actually get them away from all the other clutter, um, you can relate to them uh, as a normal person, which is nice. Well, yeah, and Michael Schumacher as well was another one. What was he like to interview? We've seen him return yeah. in the past couple of years. Yeah, Michael Michael was not, not as warm as, as, say, Jordan or Beckham. Um, Michael has that... Um, um, he's OK. He, don't get me wrong, he was friendly. But um, with Formula One, that is pr- arguably one of the most elitist and and stage managed and um you know sports through which to to, to reach people um and so there's, there's a, whenever you talk to a formula one driver there's an, ex, an element of extreme caution about them it's um it, it is highly political and i did say in the last formula one coverage i ever did for 10 um i remember running a story on uh, lewis hamilton 
and um, my producers were a bit wary of the story because I actually came out and said that it was disappointing that after meeting Lewis Hamilton and interviewing him in his first year of Formula One, what a refreshing, nice young fellow he was. But within one year, how he'd become this stage-managed, robotic, sort of, you know, cautious um, uh, person who was, you know, afraid to answer questions because, you know, of what implication might be taken from it. I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was sad. Um, and, and, you know, Barry Sheen, of all people, was the most highly pro high-profile, heavily promoted, commercialised uh, commodity in his day. Him and, um, and uh, James Hunt were the two pioneers when it comes to, you know, heavily marketed, high-profile, you know, world champions. And yet they were still larrikins, and they still were able to be themselves. Yet today, it's talking to, to Formula One drivers and, and other high-profile athletes. It's like talking to a politician. There's all these minders around them. They're ultra-cautious. You can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. Oh, don't say something this way because it might be interpreted that way. All this sort of thing. And, and by the time the media, you know, they've been put through the media sieve, um, they're just boring. They're just boring. And, uh, and so I wrote this, you know, I wrote this story and did a story on, on poor old Lewis. And, and what I was trying to say was that, you know, these guys need to lighten up. I know people get killed, you know, in motor racing. And, and, and also it's a multi-billion dollar sport where, you know, there's heavy investment and people have got their livelihoods and investments at risk. And we, we know all that. But that doesn't mean you can't have a good time. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, Unfortunately, it's one of the things that happens, though, once, you know, they do make it in the in the industry or in the sport that they're in. But, yeah, I'm, it's good to see, though, people like Barry Sheen and that that do maintain their personality throughout that time, though. Would have been interesting. I still think to this day, if, if you took Barry Sheen, as a, you know, the person he is, and put him through the same process that they put through the young people now, um, I still think Barry would come through much the same because he was that kind of person. And, and you do get the rebellious types who, who don't, you know, who don't want to be part of that system. Um, but look, you know, having said that, the media plays its part. I mean, media scrutiny these days is so much greater and it's all politically correct now. So, you know, if in the old days, and I'm going back to the 70s and, you know, possibly the 80s, the media were aware of, you know, little misdemeanours that... Um, sports people might be involved in but they were all covered over they were, they were never they were never publicized um and i'm not saying these people were criminals or anything like that i'm just saying you know they might have got drunk or something like that you know they might have said something out of line when they'd had a few drinks or something like that little things like that were always covered up now of course any any slight step out of line is heavily publicized there's someone there with a mobile phone to film it and then there's a, a whole array of people out there in the media social commentators they call them who interpret it and, and so I can understand why high-profile people are very cautious about what they say and do. But at the same time, there's got to be a balance. I mean, really, there's got to, if you don't have personality in, in these sports, after all, it is entertainment. So if you can't have personality as part of the entertainment, you know, you're really taking away a lot of the fun. Well, you moved to news back in 2010 once again, back to the newsroom. How have you found the change with all this new technology, as you've mentioned? Well, it's, it is. It's, it's dramatic. Um, it's happening fast. And, you know, the newspaper journals have, have, have already been through what we're going through at the moment. And I, I don't think Seven and Nine are doing it too easily either. Um, you know, Ten's had a massive uh, change. They've tried to cut costs dramatically through staff cuts. Uh, I think Nine and Seven are also looking at ways to reduce their costs. How they go about doing that is up to them. But... Um, 
there's no doubt that the digital media are um, are taking up a lot of attention. And in, and look, basically, in the old days, um, if you had a commercial free-to-air network, you you governed the living room of homes all over Australia. You know, you, that TV set was the hub of entertainment, and people sat down as a family every night and watched whatever was on. And they, and, and you know, they were they were kind of uh, captive to to that format. Uh, but now there are so many other different technologies uh, that enable the family to, to watch things in different ways, different times, different places. And, um, you know, it started with kids getting their, their own TVs in their bedrooms, then kids started getting their own computers in their bedrooms, and now there are mobile devices, and, and it has just gone crazy. And I, I, I don't think I'd be underestimating um, the commercial networks when I say that they are still trying to come to terms with how they can make use of this, how they can conform um, and to, to, to all the different ways people are watching uh, televised content. Um, so that, that that's very much um, in process and they're, and they're sort of playing catch-up in a lot of ways too. You, you know, we've seen it with, um, with the, uh, the American television shows that the TV networks are now trying to turn them around as quickly as possible, um, and live sport is is the same. And I, I think live news coverage and live sport is still uh, a big battleground for you know all broadcasters of all kinds. That's that's where we're going to see um, uh, a lot of success and failure. I think is is in is how people uh, watch sport and gain their news. That that's going to be a big deal. Um, you finished up on Friday, of course. Tell me. That must have been really emotional, finishing up after all those years at the network. Yeah, it, it was. It was a very emotional day and um, draining. Draining would be a, <laughs> the most appropriate word. Um, I was exhausted uh, by the end of it. And it, it's hard. I, I tried to keep it very simple. I'd, I'd, I'd been lucky enough to be able to have said things publicly in the weeks beforehand, you know, in, the, in other media. So I'd done some interviews and written some stuff for the papers and things. So... Um, I didn't feel like I need that. On Twitter, I said a few things on Twitter, so I didn't really need. To, uh, felt like I needed to say too much. So I, I you know, I just wanted to say goodbye at the end and and um, and sort of acknowledge my my colleagues because you know you, you're only as only ever as good as the team you're playing on. And um, and we've done some, you know, we've had some great times and done some great things over the years. And uh, that side of it was was very sad. I, I don't think I'll lose touch with um, the audience because I've got you know. I've got plans to do things. I can't really say anything too much about that yet, but um, but I do intend to to get involved in a lot of stuff um, in the next few years, and you know that way, if people are interested, they can still keep in touch with me. So, but I just want to acknowledge my colleagues and some of whom I probably won't be able to work with again, but um, others I might. You've done so many different things, like even watching the bulletin. I'm here in Melbourne, so we get. We usually would get Mal Walden. Yeah. So um, I'm luckily through YouTube now. I managed to watch your final, the final bit of your bulletin the other day, and it was very emotional. And one thing I didn't realise is that you're a drummer. How do you, how do you do, how do you go from you know newsroom, um, all the sports coverage, to making board games, drumming, and all these different things? How do you do it all? Yeah, and yeah, writing uh, books look, as well, for that matter. Yeah. No. I, I, look, I'm just one of those people. I'm interested in a whole lot of different things, and. Um, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Something, something interests me. I have a go at it. But um, yeah, I was a drummer since I was a kid. I played drums in just a couple of little garage bands at home, and then I was in a band in Canberra. And 
I played a charity uh, uh, gig this year. Uh, Channel 7's Sally Obermeyer was having a bit of a battle with cancer there earlier in the year, and Channel 7 and Channel 10 put bands together, and we played at a, at a fundraiser for it. And um, and uh, we <laughs> we were going to do a few more gigs. I don't know if that'll happen now, but um, we, I'm the only I'm the only one of the band who's actually not there there still. But um, we may still get together, and uh, I just love it. I, I've always been into drumming and music, um, and I've got a set of electronic drums at home, which are pretty quiet. I just use the headphones. Um, I sold off my acoustic set, and um, I play every now and again. I might be watching TV with the family, and then I'll duck downstairs and practice for an hour. Um, so, yeah, I fit it in around all sorts of things, um, but it's, it's, and it's handy having a, an electronic kit that doesn't make a lot of noise so the wife won't kick me out. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Without giving too much away, what what do you want to do? Is it sort of sport-related or is it writing? Because I've read that you're writing a new book as well. Is that true? Well, I, I've, I've written a fiction book, which is with uh, an agent at the moment, so I'm hoping that that'll get, um, that'll get uh, see the light of day. Um, I don't know yet, but uh, we're going to. If, if it doesn't, I'll probably self-publish it anyway. So it'll it'll get out there, but um, that that was a, it's like a, an adventure book based on three teenagers uh, like my own kids, um, and it's uh, just a historical um, adventure thing that they get involved in. I'd I'd bore you if I told you too much of the plot, but it's based in Paris, um, and it's, it's sort of like you know Nazi war criminals and stuff like that. So lots of blood and guts if you like that sort of thing. But um, that that's the fiction book, but. Uh, uh, look, I, I do want to do some more writing, and um, I'll be doing a column for a newspaper over the over the summer. Um, and um, I'm going to um, sort of, I'll try and get back and do maybe a bit of radio as well, and um, and and a bit of TV. But again, no, nothing concrete. The only thing concrete is that I've been asked to do a column over the over the summer for um, for the Daily Telegraph, and I'll I'll be doing that. So. Um, that's about it at the moment. But um, I'm sort of uh, the the main thing is I do need a break. Uh, I haven't had a holiday this year, so um, I, I'm and as I said to you, I was it was pretty draining going through that whole experience last uh, few few weeks. So um, I'm just going to kick back and uh, gonna, after we uh, after I speak to you, I'm actually going to go down the driving range, hit a few golf balls with my son. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, so just things like that, get out in the boat, do a bit of fishing, all those sort of things. I'm pretty keen fisherman as well. So. Oh, you're a jack of all trades, Billy. All the best. You too, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Have a good one.